0: Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. I hope you're doing good, man. The other day, my friend texted me and said they were listening to my podcast. And I got to tell you, every time that happens, I feel like we're hanging out. And I love it, because that's why I have the Garage Band of All Podcasts, so I can hang out with my friends. Anyway, since I felt like we were hanging out, I thought uh, I would give them a more complete experience of hanging out with me. So I texted back, Dude, thanks for hanging out on a Sunday. If we're hanging out in real life, you could hear my six-year-old crying because my 14-year-old just shot him in the eye with a Nerf gun. (laughs) Just keeping the Sabbath day holy around here. And text. Dude, families are crazy. Today we're going to talk about the family proclamation. And can I just acknowledge out front that everybody's family is crazy? It's true. Sorry, Mom. I I know you're listening. It's still true. Everybody's family is crazy in some way. And it's weird because family is somehow simultaneously the most frustrating and fulfilling experience of our lives. So, let's jump in. First, I want to ask you the question, is the family proclamation true doctrine? And short answer is, yeah. But how can we know that? Well, a while back, we talked about how to discern true doctrine. If you missed that episode, you can go back to episode 12, the one associated with Doctrine and Covenants section 21 and look at the principles we taught. Anyway, there, there are basically three lenses we can use to examine teachings to see if they're true doctrine. The first one, is this teaching in accord with the repeated teachings of the standard works? Number two, is it consistently or unitedly proclaimed by the apostles? Number three, is it confirmed by the Holy Ghost? When these three overlap, we can know that that teaching is true doctrine. So is the family proclamation true doctrine? Let's go back to when it's first introduced by Gordon B. Hinckley. He says this. He says, With so much sophistry, now that's a word that means the use of false arguments with the intent to deceive, with so much sophistry that is passed off as truth, with so much of deception concerning standards and values, with so much allurement and enticement to take on the slow stain of the world, we felt to warn and forewarn. In furtherance of this, We, the First Presidency, and the Council of the Twelve Apostles, now issue a proclamation to the church and the world declaring a reaffirmation of the standards and doctrines and practices relative to the family, which the prophets, seers, and revelators of this church have repeatedly stated throughout her history. So, here we go. The three lenses, again, are, is it in accord with the repeated teachings of the standard works? Check. Check. Is it consistently or unitedly proclaimed by the apostles? Check. Is it confirmed by the Holy Ghost? Check. So just to be very clear, the, uh, the family, a proclamation to the world, is official doctrine. It is truth. Now, in saying that, I'm not discounting the, the, the fact that this can be a difficult topic. Like I said before, first of all, everybody's family is crazy, Additionally, many of us have people in our lives who we love who are gay or transgender or who have felt the effects of divorce or other family difficulties. But just because this is a difficult topic does not mean that it's one that we need to avoid. Here's a couple of points I, I want to make just right up front before we read some of the paragraphs here in the family proclamation. Number one, Jesus, um, Alma describes Jesus this way, Alma chapter 7, right? Um and, and Jesus shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and sicknesses of his people. First of all, I just want to make this point really clear. Jesus gets more than anybody some of the, the family pain that an individual can experience. And he chooses to teach the doctrine of the family anyway, because it will bless your life. Faith is always the first principle of the gospel, and I'm asking you to trust Jesus on this. He knows, um, he knows the difficulty, but he also continues to teach this. Second point I want to make is that um, those who are LGBT plus are going to heaven. Well, we believe that that, um, all those individuals are going to heaven. We have the most expansive view of salvation, basically, of anyone out there. You look in Doctrine and Covenants 76 and Doctrine and Covenants 138. And, And so when it comes to this stress, like, I'd invite you again to trust Jesus and cast your cares on him. Number three... As we talk about families, know that this doctrine grows out of our understanding about what has God has revealed about the nature of exaltation or godhood. Like you can see it in Doctrine and Covenants 131 and 132. Uh, what, what I mean here is that what it means to be a God, what God is trying to transform us or develop us into, is to be a creative being. And that is found in the duality of a man and a woman working together biologically speaking, it takes a man and a woman to create new human life. And the creation of life is central to what it means to be like God, um, to be the the creative power of eternal increase of children and progress. Therefore, sealing a man and a woman together is is central to the nature of God. Now, when it comes to the challenges we face concerning the family and mortality— I don't know exactly how God is going to sort out each individual case in the next life. Nobody knows. But we do know that God loves his children and he will honor agency. And so he's asking us to trust him right now. Faith is the first principle of the gospel here. Finally, just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not of God. Uh, Hard things are a linchpin of Heavenly Father's plan. He does this all the time. If you are asked personally to face a particularly difficult challenge in your family, I'd invite you to see it as a sign of trust from our Father in heaven, not a sign of disfavor. So, let's jump right into paragraph one. We, the First Presidency and Council of the the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, solemnly proclaim that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God, and that the family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children. So, okay, the family and marriage is central to God's plan. We talked a little bit about the identity of God as an eternal being, a creative being, a man and a woman creating together. Um, But what does the family have to do with this, right? Well, uh, we know that God's plan is not just for us to slog through mortality. We know that it's not just to redeem us. It's to transform us to be like God. He, He wants to give us everything he has. So what does that have to do with marriage? Well, like we said, God is a married being, George Q. Cannon said. He has a wife and we are his offspring. Um, James E. Talmadge says, It's within man's power to follow in the footsteps of his celestial parents to reach the rank and station occupied by those who have trodden the path before. And, and Dallin H. Oak says, Exaltation is an eternal family experience. And, and it is our mortal family experiences that are best suited to prepare us for it. So, What God's plan is, is for us to become transformed, to be like him. And having families is basically how we become like him. Number one, in the creative process of creating new life. But number two, in the development of attributes, the transformation of attributes. And family is central to this. And it's kind of simple. Like, families place us in situations where you love people so much you do things for them that you wouldn't otherwise do, and in the process of taking these actions, you're transformed by it. For example, now let me just tell you, the example I'm going to use is a little bit vulgar, but we're not the garage band of come follow me podcast for nothing. So here's the example. If one of you poos his pants, like if a fart just gets away from you, well, guess what? You're on your own. I'm not doing a dang thing for you. I'm not even going to hose you down in my backyard. But with my children, I have found them covered in poo, like out of the diaper, up the back, in the hair, on the sheets, spread out across the wall like a finger painting. And I have scrubbed it all willingly. I have scooped morning sickness vomit out of car cup holders, all while dry heaving myself. I've walked downstairs in the middle of the night with a pipe in my hand to check for quote-unquote, robbers. They're like, family provides the most and best opportunities for our transformations. And and you don't even have to go looking for it, man. They're going to be right there in front of your face all the time. It's the perfect opportunities of transformation. So let's go into paragraphs two and three. All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit, son, or daughter of heavenly parents, and as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. Gender is an essential characteristic of individual premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. In the premortal realm, realm, spirit sons and daughters knew and worshipped God as their eternal father and accepted his plan. Accepted his plan, which we're saying families are central. By which children could obtain physical bodies. That's why families are so crucial, right? It gives children a chance to have bodies. Gain earthly experience and progress. Again, families, families, families. um, Toward perfection and ultimately realize the divine destiny as as heirs of eternal life of being like God. So let's break this down a little bit. All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Michael Coogan, who teaches Hebrew Bible at uh, at Harvard Divinity School, says this, The general principle here is that humans are modeled on God, almost genetically. Humans are modeled on Elohim, specifically in their sexual differences. The word Elohim is a plural in form and is often used in the Bible with the plural meaning gods. Humans are male and female in the image of God's because the gods are male and female. Humans are as well, end quote. Joseph F. Smith, excuse me, Joseph Fielding Smith talking about this. He says, the union of male and female, the union of the two, was required to complete man in the image of the God. The image of God is not a singular man, it's not a singular woman. The image of God is the union of a man and a woman together. D. Todd Christofferson says, each individual carries the divine image But it is in the matrimonial union of male and female as one that we attain perhaps the most complete meaning of our having been made in the image of God, male and female. Therefore, um, we have divine nature and destiny, it says there. Basically, Lorenzo Snow breaks it down. He says, our spirit births gave us godlike capacities. And again, this idea of becoming like God in the creative endeavor, the transformational endeavor. There is the nature of deity in the composition of our spiritual organization. In our spiritual birth, our father transmitted to us the capacities, powers, and faculties which he himself possessed, as much so as the child on its mother's bosom possesses, although in an undeveloped state. The faculties, powers, and susceptibilities of its parent. End quote. Similarly, George Buchanan says this: We are the children of God, and as His children, there is no attribute we ascribe to Him that we do not possess, though they may be dormant or in embryo. The mission of the gospel is to develop these powers and to make us like our heavenly parent. I know this is true, and such knowledge makes me feel happy. This brings us to the idea that says next that gender, therefore, is an essential characteristic of individual premortal, mortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. Richard G. Scott commenting on this says, The scriptures record, and I God created man, male and female created I them. This was done spiritually in your premortal existence when you lived in the presence of your Father in heaven. Your gender existed before you came to earth. James E. Talmadge says, We affirm the re- as reasonable, scriptural, and true the eternity of sex among the children of God. The distinction between male and female is no condition peculiar and relative uh, to the relatively brief period of mortal life. It was an essential characteristic of our preexistent condition, even as it shall continue after death, in both the disembodied and the resurrected states. There's no accident or chance due to purely physical conditions by which the sex of the unborn is determined. The body takes the form of male and female, according to the sex of the spirit, whose appointment it is to, the, to tenant that body, end quote. So we've talked about how um, sex is important, gender is important in the creation of, of human life, but there's also more than that. Elder Bednar says the nature's, of male and female spirits, complete and perfect each other. Therefore, men and women are intended to progress together towards exaltation. By divine design, men and women are intended to progress together toward perfection and a fullness of glory because of their distinctive temperaments and capacities, males and females each bring to a marriage relationship unique perspectives and experiences. The man and the woman contribute differently but equally to a oneness and a unity that can be achieved in no other way. The man completes and perfects the woman, and the woman completes and perfects the man as they learn from and mutually strengthen and bless each other. But Satan, as Elder Bednar says, works unremittingly to confuse our understanding about gender and promote um, bad ideas about this. So be, beware of extremes, right? Right. Um, one extreme is to emphasize the differences so much between men and women to the point of competition and incompatibility incompat- ca- and anger. That's an extreme we should avoid. The other extreme is an effort to erase all differences in an attempt at equality. What we want is a strong middle ground, an idea that we are equal but different, and that's good, and that we complete one another Therefore, we're not meant to compete with one another. We should use our differences to edify and build. Uh, and we're, we're to unite our differences while retaining them. That's a good thing. So as we talk about marriage between a man and a woman and, and all the, the things that God intends for this to, to mean for us and become from this, let's take a moment and discuss same-sex attraction when we we talk about same-sex attraction generally we're meaning romantic or uh, erotic um attraction here but as far as like attraction goes there's a full spectrum you're attracted to people aesthetically like by the way they look or affectionately like the way they, they make you feel or the friendship you feel to them you're attracted to them spiritually and then also romantically and erotically. And you'll feel these these feelings of attraction for the the opposite sex and the same sex. Well, what's um, encouraged is in the gospel is that we we express that those friendships and that attraction spiritually to both the opposite and same sex, but that romantic and erotic attraction be reserved only for marriage between a man and a woman. Now that means, as Elder Holland says, um, as fellow church members, families, and friends, we need to recognize. That those attracted to the same gender face some unique restrictions regarding the expression of their feelings. While same-gender attraction is real, there must be no physical expression to this attraction. This idea is not something new taught in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's taught throughout the scriptures. You can find it in the Old Testament, particularly in Leviticus. You can find it in the New Testament. You can go in Romans there. Um, and, and so the, this idea that, that we need to hone or refine our desires is not something new. Elder Holland goes on, the desire for physical gratification does not authorize immorality by anyone. Such feelings can be powerful, but they are never so strong as to deprive anyone of the freedom to choose worthy conduct. Now, sometimes when the, this um, idea is taught, people uh, become angry about it because they're they're like, this is attraction is just how I am. I'm just being authentic to my innate feelings. Are you asking me to deny who I am? I would like you to consider that, that it's not an, an idea of denying who you are. And just because it's natural does not mean that it's something that, that we need to act on. I really like how Ty Mansfield, he's a, a gay professor of religion at BYU, puts it. He says, several prophets have taught that we are gods in embryo. That is truly our identity right there, right? And in Mormon theology, he says, the work of godhood is a work of creation and order, of organizing intelligences or of bringing order to disordered or chaotic elements in the universe to form new worlds. The call of authentic, imaginative, and generative spirituality is to identify opportunities to actively engage in this creative work of godhood every day. And that creative work means managing emotions, ordering distorted thought patterns, bridling passions, educating desires, growing souls, or organizing families. Godhood isn't about seeking to live according to what is natural, but to take natural elements and shape it organize it, build it, channel it, bridle it, and nurture it towards something transcendent, whether that be the element of our bodies or the element of the cosmos, end quote. That is a core element of the gospel following after the redemption of Jesus Christ is the idea that we are to create, shape, and build our minds, our lives, our bodies, our desires. Now, do we know what causes same-sex attraction Well, Jesus comments a little bit. He's teaching about the seriousness of divorce and the importance of family. And then he drops an interesting line in Matthew 19. His disciples say unto Jesus, If the case of man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But Jesus said unto them, All men cannot receive the same, save they whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. And there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Now, in commentating on this, there is a, a scriptural scholar named Basilides. He, he lives in Alexandria, Egypt, kind of a center of learning in Christianity. He's there at 117 to 138 AD is where he teaches. And he comments on this passage, and he says that this commentary comes directly from Matthew. He says, quote, "Some men from their birth have a nature to turn away from women, and those who are naturally constituted this way do well not to marry. these they say are the eunuchs from birth End quote. so it seems through this interpretation that that one of the um, things Jesus is saying is that if this is a natural constitution for you, then you have a um, an ability to shape and hone this desire. Elder Oaks says, Some kinds of feelings seem to be inborn. Others are traceable to mortal experiences. Still others, other feelings seem to be acquired from a complex interaction of nature and nurture. All of us have some feelings we did not choose. But the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us that we still have the power to resist and reform our feelings as needed and to assure that they do not lead us to entertain inappropriate thoughts or engage in sinful behavior. Different persons have different physical characteristics and different susceptibilities to the various physical and emotional pressures we may encounter in our childhood and adult environments. We do not choose these personal susceptibilities, but we do choose and we will be accountable for the attitudes, priorities, behavior, and lifestyle we engraft upon these desires, end quote. Simply said, Elder D Todd Christopherson says we all have a horse to tame, and as as um, we have friends taming horses, whatever they may be, Jeffrey R Holland says we may not be able to alter the journey, the the difficulty or the hardship of another, but we can make sure that no one is on that journey alone. Now, to you who are gay, know that you are warmly welcome in the kingdom of God. We need you. We need your gifts. God put you here for a reason. We need you to gather God's children in love and help build up the kingdom of God. I think Isaiah says it really well in chapter 56. Thus saith the Lord, keep ye judgment. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, and keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. So, so you follow what he's saying. He, blessed is the individual who works to do good things. And then he goes on and he says some interesting things. He says, Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them... Will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than the sons uh, and of the daughters? I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. All right. Now back to the last part of paragraph three. The divine plan of happiness enables family relationships to be perpetuated beyond the grave. Sacred ordinances and covenants available in holy temples make it possible for individuals to return to the presence of God and be united eternally. Basically, we're saying that covenants allow us to return to the presence of God. Some people have serious doubts about the need for ordinances. They'll say things like, are you telling me Mother Teresa has to have her temple work done or else she can't go to heaven? Wow. Really, just wow. Or, or they'll say things like, why would God let a couple be to, uh, together for all eternity just because they were married in the temple and yet not let allow another couple to do so who is just as in love, committed, and faithful to each other as the first couple? Simply because they didn't get married in the temple. That, that's such a small technicality. God really is this capricious? End quote. I... I What do we do about that? Because we know God is not capricious. And if God's not capricious, then there must be something real impeding our reunion with God and impeding the internalizing of, of our relationships. And since God is clearly serious about ordinances and covenants, then whatever it is that's standing in the way of eternalizing our relationships can be overcome and corrected and compensated for through these ordinances and covenants. I submit to you that the idea that gets in the way is cosmic entropy. It's death and decay. Things just fall apart. That's how it is. Um, but God is able to overcome this entropy. It, who he is is creative and powerful. But he will not force anybody to accept this, this creation, right? James E. Talmadge says, man alone cannot save himself. Christ alone cannot save him. The plan of salvation is cooperative. God will force no man either into heaven or hell. Nellie Maxwell goes on to says, God cannot choose to create another God except with the full cooperation of that individual. So our cooperation is manifest as we choose to, to participate in ordinances. That allows us to connect with God's creative power to overcome the natural cosmic entropy in death and to move on and live again. Let's keep going here. Paragraphs four and five. The first commandment that God gave Adam and Eve pertained to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. We declare that God's command for his children to multiply and replenish the earth remains in force. We further declare that God has commanded that sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman lawfully wedded as husband and wife. We declare the means by which mortal life to be created is to be divinely appointed. We affirm the sanctity of life and of its importance in God's eternal plan. So we've talked already that part of being a a, a husband and a wife is to create new life, right? And God's saying clearly that this commandment to have children remains in force. Um, But also he talks a little bit here about the use of the sacred powers of procreation for sexual relationships within marriage. Now, right off the bat, man, let's be clear. Sex in marriage is for having kids, but it isn't only for having kids. The For Strength of Youth pamphlet says this Physical intimacy between husband and wife is beautiful and sacred. It is ordained of God for the creation of uh, children and for the expression of love between husband and wife. Physical intimacy is ordained of God for the expression of love between husband and wife. In fact, when married couples neglect this aspect of marriage, bad things happen. Spencer W. Kimball says, he says, if you study the divorces as we have had to do in these past years, you'll find that there are one, two, or three, four reasons. Generally, sex is the first reason for divorce. The couple did not get along sexually. They may not say it in court. They might not even sit down their attorneys, but that's the reason. Basically, uh, a physical relationship, physical intimacy is an important part of creating a, a loving marriage it's one of the things that make a a bigger impact like basketball wise if you looked at a chart of shots a a decade or two decades ago you'd find shots scattered all throughout the inside uh, of the three-point line but now if you look at a a chart of shots you'll see that most shots are taken from the three-point line or right next to the basket it's because certain things matter more literally three-pointers are worth more And if you're close to the basket, you have a greater chance of making the basket or being fouled and going to the line and making more points. Certain things matter more. And they can be just small things. As it says in Alma 37, you may suppose that this is foolishness in me, but behold, I say unto you that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. And small means in many instances does confound the wise. And this is one of them. I would encourage you to work together to come up, come to a place where, where sex is a unifying thing in your marriage. And when it comes to marital sex, P. W. Kimball says it should be a general program between the two of you so, so that they understand and everybody is happy about it. I plead with all people bound by marriage vows and covenants to make that marriage holy, keep it fresh, express affection meaningfully, and sincerely and often. This will, uh, this will, one, avoid the pitfalls that destroy marriage. Th- that's big, right? I'm encouraging you to work on this, to keep marriage fresh and express affection meaningfully, sincerely, and often. Now, let's talk about the kids that come from this relationship. Paragraph six. Husband and wife have the solemn responsibility to love and care for their children. Children are an heritage to the Lord. This is the only scripture quoted in that, um, this whole um, document, right? It's emphasizing the fact that children are important. Usually people talk about marriages for the gratification of the, the marriage partners, but children are a major point here. Parents have a sacred duty to love, um, sacred duty to rear their children in love and righteousness to provide for their physical and spiritual needs, and to teach them, number one, love and serve one another, number two, to observe the commandments of God, and number three, to be law-abiding citizens wherever they live. Husband and wives, mothers and fathers will be held accountable before God for the discharge of these obligations. Um, It goes on to say here, the family is ordained of God. Marriage between a man and a woman is essential to his eternal plan. Children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity. Happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Successful marriages and families are established and maintained on principles of Faith, prayer, repentance, forgiveness, respect, love, compassion, work, and wholesome recreational activities. By divine design, fathers are to preside over their families in love and righteousness and are responsible to provide the necessities of life and protection for their families. Mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children in these sacred responsibilities. In these sacred responsibilities, sorry, fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equal partners. Disability, death, and other circumstances may necessitate individual adaptation. Extended families should lend support when needed. So that was a long part of me just reading. But the idea is that children are important, and our work to raise children is very important. And sometimes it can be rough, man. Uh, Remember my story about my son shooting my other son in the eye with a Nerf gun bullet and everybody was crying? Like sometimes it can feel kind of frustrating, like you're not making much effect. Elder Bednar can relate. He says, As our sons were growing up, our family did what you have done and what you now do. We had regular prayer, scripture study, family home evening. Now I'm sure what I'm about to describe has never occurred in your home, but it did in ours. Now uh, <coughs> now and then, verses of scripture were read amidst outbursts such as, He's touching me. Make him stop looking at me. Mom, he's breathing my air. Sincere prayers occasionally were interrupted with giggling and poking, and with active, rambunctious boys, family home evening lessons did not always produce high levels of edification. At times, Sister Bednar and I were exasperated because the righteous habits we worked so hard to foster did not seem to yield uh, immediately the spiritual results we wanted and expected. Today, if you ask our adult sons what they remember about family prayer, scripture study, and family home evening, I believe I know how they would answer. They likely would not identify a particular prayer or a specific instance of scripture study or an especially meaningful family home evening lesson as the defining moment in their spiritual development. What they would say they remember is that as a family, we were consistent. Sister Bednar and I thought we were helping our sons understand that the content of a particular lesson or a specific scripture, but such a result does not occur each time we study or pray or learn together. The consistency of our intent and work was perhaps the greatest lesson, a lesson we did not fully appreciate at the time. In my office is a beautiful painting of a wheat field. The painting is a vast collection of individual brush strokes. None of the brush strokes in isolation is very interesting or impressive. In fact, if you stand close to the canvas, all you can see is a mass of seemingly unrelated and unattractive streaks of yellow and gold and brown. However, as you gradually move away from the canvas, all of the individual brush strokes combine together and produce a magnificent landscape of wheat field. Many ordinary individual brushstrokes work together to create a captivating and beautiful painting. Each family prayer, each episode of family scripture study, each family home evening is a brushstroke on the canvas of our souls. No one event may appear to be very impressive or memorable. But just as the yellow, gold, and brown strokes of paint uh, complement each other and produce an impressive masterpiece— so our consistency in doing seemingly small things can lead to great spiritual results. Wherefore, be not we- weary in well-doing, for you are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. Consistency is a key principle as we lay the foundation of a great work in our individual lives and as we become more diligent and concerned in our homes. Just be consistent here, man. You're going to fail repent begin again family prayer family scripture study and being together as a family in meaningful ways that's all we're talking about oh yeah and go to church together as a family right be consistent on these things and and know that as we are consistent in these things by divine design fathers and mothers are are essential to this together Um, In the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ newsroom, you can find an article called The Divine Institution of Marriage. And it says, Extensive studies have shown that in general, a husband and wife united in a loving, committed marriage provide the optimal environment for children to be protected, nurtured, and raised. This is not only because of the substantial personal resources that two parents can bring to bear on raising a child, but because of the differing strengths that a father and a mother by virtue of their gender bring to the task a prominent sociologist david Popineau says it this way the burden of social science evidence supports the idea that gender differentiated parenting is important for human development and that the contribution of fathers to childbearing is unique and irreplaceable the complementary uh, complementarity of male and female parenting styles is striking and of enormous importance to the child's overall development. It is sometimes said that fathers express more concern for the child's long-term development while mothers focus on the child's immediate well-being, which of course in its own way has everything to do with a child's long-term well-being. What is clear is that children have dual needs that must be met, uh, one for independence and one for relatedness, one for the challenge and another for support. Social historian David Blackenhorn says, um, in an ideal society, every child would be raised by both a father and a mother. End quote there from the, the newsroom. Basically, mom and dad using their differences to cooperative, cooperatively raise children is highly beneficial Like, what if we were to run an experiment to see if it's actually right? It would obviously be an unethical experiment. We would test the truthfulness of what the prophets are teaching in the family proclamation. What we would do is we'd remove fathers from the lives of their children permanently and document the effects that it has on the children. Like, nobody would run that study. You could not get that approved of anybody. Unfortunately, it's actually being run. We have over 24 million children in the United States without uh, their biological father. That's one in every three kids. And fatherless children, we have found, are very much at risk. They are 10 times more likely to abuse drugs, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager, twice as likely to commit suicide, less likely to succeed in school, 120% more likely to be the victim of child abuse, 15 times more likely to end up in prison, They account for, uh, kids from fatherless homes account for 90% of all runaway children, 85% of all the youth in prison, 85% of the children with behavioral disorders, 80% of convicted rapists, 75% of the youth in drug abuse centers, 71% of adolescent substance abusers come from fatherless homes, 71% of high school dropouts uh, are accounted for by fatherless individuals. 71% of pregnant teenagers, fatherless homes. 63% of youth suicides, fatherless homes. Now, I'm not saying that if circumstances have put you in a situation where a single-parent home is the only option, that you can't raise great kids. Dallin H. Oaks comes from a uh, single-parent home. He's exceptional, and you have tons of these stories. But if you were to ask the large majority of single parents if they would prefer to have a loving, helpful companion working with them, the overwhelming answer would be yes. So what can we do? Well, fathers, you are to preside, provide, and protect your family. That means you're expected to lead out in making sure things happen. Things like scripture study, come follow me and family nights. Do not wait for your wife to tell you. You make this happen, okay? Lead out in protecting your family. I'm not just talking about, I don't know, having a pipe under your bed to get robbers in the middle of the night. Uh, I'm talking about protecting your family from pornography and other dangers. Lead out in providing not only food, but lead out in providing love and growth. And mothers, you are primarily responsible to nurture your children. That word is important. It it talks like a, a plant growing. And an effective plant will have deep roots. You are to nurture them physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. You're to help them to be tough. A plant that does not develop on its own sufficient root system will not deal with the storms of life. Your role is not necessarily to make things easy for your children or to smooth over every difficulty. Your role is to help them grow physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally, and to grow deeply so that they are enough for this world. In this process, you are co-creators with God, fathers and mothers. Not just in getting your children here, but in shaping them into what they become. Creation is ongoing and you get to participate with it every day. Now, as you know, just because you work hard as a parent, it doesn't mean that your children will always be angels. Dude, they're going to be like the opposite of angels. Straight demons sometimes, man. Straight up, man. You're going to want to headbutt them in the face. It's truth. Don't headbutt them. But you're going to want to. Like... And this is normal. Just look at great parents like Heavenly Father. They have children that go astray. Lehi, Alma. Like their kids make choices that are terrible. But just because your kids rebel doesn't mean you should despair. Spencer W. Kimball says this. He says, I I remember vividly my first view of an iceberg. In 1937, Sister Kimball and I made our first crossing of the Atlantic by steamer from Montreal out through the St. Lawrence River and into the North Atlantic. One day, when we were well out into the ocean, there was an excitement on the ship. An iceberg had been sighted. Most of the passengers rushed to the deck to see this sight, and we could see it in the distance, a great white object against the dark sea and the azure sky. There it floated quietly in the water like a sharp peak of a high mountain range, a thing of beauty to behold. All my life I had heard about them, and now, for the first time, uh, it was there before my eyes, a sharp mountain peak of ice." Uh, Now these icebergs were spawned by the Greenland ice sheet and they follow a highly predictable course. As the silent Labrador current ceaselessly moves to the south through the Baffin Bay and the Davis Strait, it takes with it these mountainous icebergs, even, and this is an important point, even against the forces of the winds, the waves, and the tides. Currents have much more power to control the icebergs course, than surface winds. As it's true of icebergs, it's true of us. That our course is in important measure determined by forces we only partly perceive. Accordingly, and this goes back to, to kids who rebel, right? If we can create in our families a strong, steady current, flowing towards our goal of righteous life. Back to Elder Bednar's consistency here, right? We and our children may be carried forward in spite of the contrary winds of hardship, disappointment, temptations, and fashion. I have sometimes seen children of good families rebel, resist, stray, sin, and even actually fight God. In this, they bring sorrow to their parents who have done their best to set in in movement a current and teach and live it as examples, but as I have repeatedly seen many of these sane children, after years of wandering, mellow, realize what they have been missing, repent, and make great contribution to the spiritual life of their community. The reason I believe this can take place is that, despite all the adverse winds to which these people have been subjected they have been influenced still more and much more than they realized by the current of life in their homes in which they were reared. When in their later years they feel a longing to recreate in their own families that same atmosphere they enjoyed as children, they are likely to turn to the faith that gave them meaning to their parents' lives. There's no guarantee, of course, that righteous parents will succeed always in holding their children and certainly they may lose them. What we do know, though, is that righteous parents who strive to develop wholesome influences for their children will, uh, will be held blameless at the last day, and they will succeed in saving most of their children, if not all of their children. So how do we do this? Well, successful marriages and families are established and maintained on principles of faith. Number one, always trusting God and trusting Jesus Christ in his power to save and letting go of everything else. Prayer, repentance, forgiveness, respect, love, compassion, work, and maybe my favorite, wholesome recreational activities. So let's do it. Trust God and move forward. When you fall short, repent and forgive. Seek to respect one another and love them and have compassion for them and work at it. And go out and have some fun today, man. May I suggest Nerf Wars? It's hilarious. Sock Wars? also a good time. Finally, we warn that individuals who violate covenants of chastity, who abuse spouse or offspring, or who fail to fully fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable before God. Further, we warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individuals, communities, and nations the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. We call upon responsible citizens and officers of government everywhere to promote those, ma- uh, those measures designed to maintain and strengthen the family as the fundamental unit of society. We call upon you today, you, to strengthen the family. Just do one small thing today. Send a text. Have some Nerf wars. Have some sock wars. That's it. Do something small today to strengthen your family. I promise you you will feel the Holy Ghost witness of the goodness of this endeavor. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.